Once upon a time, two friends began sharing their dreams, literally. We wrote them down in the wee hours and unpacked them with each other via text upon waking, finding inspiration in their symbolism. Our dreams taught us that divine fingerprints are everywhere and can illuminate a path to Jesus Christ. I am Sarah. And I am Megan. And this is Dreamsicle. Join us as we learn to pay attention and find revelation for our lives hiding in plain sight. Today we're talking about miracles. We're going to talk about what constitutes a miracle, what a miracle really looks like, and what happens sometimes when it seems like the miracle we're seeking isn't coming. So when we think about miracles, what comes to mind? For me, for a long time, I've thought of things like instant healing or deliverance, something truly extraordinary and only possible through divine intervention, like the parting of the Red Sea, Jesus healing people throughout the New Testament and when he visited the Nephites, walking on water, turning water to wine, feeding the 5,000. All of these are miracles, and they're a way that Jesus showed the reality of who he was. Jesus has always defined himself as someone who works miracles. In 2 Nephi chapter 27, verse 23, it says, For behold, I am God, and I am a God of miracles. And I will show unto the world that I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I work not among the children of men, save it be according to their faith. The same sentiment is reiterated in Mormon 9, verse 19. It says, And if there were miracles wrought then, why has God ceased to be a God of miracles and yet be an unchangeable being? And behold, I say unto you, he changeth not. If so, he would cease to be God. And he ceaseth not to be God and is a God of miracles. Yeah, I mean, this is what the Bible Dictionary talks about when it says miracles should not be regarded as deviations from the ordinary course of nature, so much as manifestations of divine or spiritual power. Some lower law was in each case superseded by the action of a higher. They were intended to be a proof to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Kind of what we're understanding here is that a miracle isn't some kind of aberration. It's like a presentation of the Lord's infinite power. It's not a variation on how things work. It's the way divinity does work and always has worked. So, this kind of like calls to mind broadening the definition of miracles. If the Savior's performed miracles from the beginning and and still does, what do those look like? We're not necessarily seeing something that looks like the parting of the Red Sea right now. And so, this kind of like begs the question, what is a miracle? How do we know it's one? So, sometimes we think of a miracle as simply being something really out of the ordinary or that will happen outside of statistical probability. However, in a memoir I read earlier this year, actually, you read it too, right? Yes, I did. It's very good. It was called Here If You Need Me by Kate Braystrup, and she is the chaplain for the main game wardens and participated in a lot of search and rescue missions. I mean, she had to help people in really difficult situations, 
like, well, loved ones while they're searching for their lost children or missing and endangered spouses. And so she was there comforting them. And it, it didn't always work out. I mean, it didn't, it wasn't always a happy ending. Right. And so she identified kind of the difference, like what defines a miracle. She wrote, a miracle is not defined by an event. A miracle is defined by gratitude. And I really love that because in her book, she talked a lot about specific rescue missions that ended successfully, but she also talked about some that did not. And there was one in particular that she um, referenced where like a violent crime had taken place, someone was kidnapped and murdered, and it was, you know, in broad daylight, statistically improbable. And so what makes the difference between, you know, a miracle and a tragedy that are both improbable? And it's gratitude. So if, if we can identify God's hand in a situation, or even the increase of love that is shown by a community or a group of people to reach out and support, then that's where we can also see the miracle. So also through this, like thinking of a miracle through this definition, a miracle might not always make sense to people who are outside of our situation. Um, They might not see it as a miracle, even if we do, because maybe they don't feel the gratitude. They only see the tragedy, Hmm. but that doesn't matter. (laughs) <laughs> still a miracle it's still a miracle absolutely Elder Hallstrom gave a talk where he invited us to reframe our understanding of what constitutes a miracle he said often we describe a miracle as being healed without a full explanation by medical science or as avoiding catastrophic danger by heeding a clear prompting. However, defining a miracle as a beneficial event brought about through divine power that mortals do not understand gives us an expanded perspective into matters more eternal in nature. And I loved this broadened definition. It doesn't have to be the total healing or the deliverance from danger. It's anything that benefits us that's brought about by divine power, which really is such an expansive definition. I think when we think of miracles this way, we can we can start to see them all around us. Sometimes the miracle is simply recognizing that God really knows us and sees our situation and that our heavenly parents love us. So about seven years ago, my second daughter was diagnosed with a rare chromosome disorder. She was eight months old, and we got the phone call on a Friday afternoon that her blood work had come back, and she was missing a part of her 11th chromosome, and this would result in a life-changing situation for her and for the rest of our family. The next day was the Saturday session of General Conference, where Elder Holland gave a talk. It was really kind of focused on like mental illness. It was a good one. But he also specifically mentioned chromosomal defects. And I don't think that that had ever been mentioned in general conference. I just saw it as kind of miraculous for me to hear that and to realize that God saw me. He knew my situation and my daughter's, and I could feel love from my heavenly parents. What happens, though, when we don't get the miracle? Yeah, I know, right? That's like a really good question. 
what about when the miracle doesn't come, when there isn't some miraculous healing or the disaster isn't diverted or there isn't just like this stunning instantaneous resolution to our problems. I think you and I are both familiar with thinking about pondering this concept. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What happens? So I read a few things that helped me understand that miracles can be subtle and they can be gradual and they can unfold over time. Richard G. Scott once said, when we seek inspiration to help make decisions, the Lord gives gentle promptings. These require us to think, to exercise faith, to work, to struggle at times, and to act. Seldom does the whole answer to a decisively important matter or complex problem come all at once. More often, it comes a piece at a time without the end in sight. This is something that really resonates with me and with my parenting experiences. There were so many times when I asked Jeff for a priesthood blessing, my husband, and I would get the answer that you will be inspired to know what to do. Like, you will figure this out. And it was was not the answer I wanted. (laughs) I did feel peace during all of those blessings, but it was like, you're going to just learn how to do this. You're going to have like increased wisdom. And there was this like ongoing struggle. The struggle was part of the process It was also part of the miracle because things did gradually unfold over time and we did have answers and change. But miracles, as so many leaders have taught, can be quiet and they can be gentle in nature. It can be, a miracle can be somebody forgiving someone else. A miracle can be feeling God's love when you felt closed off from that. A miracle can be finding an answer to a question that you've had for years and suddenly seeing it in new light. So what about these quiet personal miracles? Are they something that happens like even daily? Sister Sydney Reynolds described these as private miracles, and she said they are just as profound as the parting of the Red Sea. I incidentally heard Chieko Okazaki, who's one of my heroes, speak when I was lucky. I know, so many years ago, and she, all I remember from that talk was, she said, miracles are happening every single day in your life, and if you're not seeing them, you're not paying attention, (laughs) which is true. So, miracles, we're learning, generally are quiet, even private and personal. Like Other people, as you've mentioned, may not recognize it as a miracle. So, speaking to this idea of miracles being quiet, private, and personal— We have this story from 1 Kings where Elijah is taken up into the cleft of a rock and it says, There was loud thunder, but the Lord was not in the thunder. There was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And then there was a still small voice, which was the voice of the Lord saying, What doest thou here, Elijah? Joseph Smith said about this concept, The Lord cannot always be known by the thunder of his voice, by the display of his glory, or by the manifestation of his power. It's like he chose to speak to Elijah in a still small voice, and that's where that's where he was found, not in the thunder, not in the earthquake. And I think we can see miracles in our lives that are really quiet, gentle, and peaceful. example of this 
occurred in my son Jack's life. I mean, I think for a lot of years, I almost saw his condition as as a tragedy, this thing that was just so limiting and kind of sad and unfair. And it was over time that God really revealed to me that his life was a miracle. Like it wasn't tragic. It was amazing. It was miraculous. After Jack went into residential care at age 13, it was just this real growing period. I was struggling to like let him go and see him like live his life separate from us. And I I worried about him. But then I started to have these dreams about what I consider the real Jack. And these were my miracles, these dreams. They were so happy and peaceful. And unlike the behaviors that I saw all the time with Jack, when he was really little, still living at home, things were really hard at that point. And in this dream, he and I were in a canoe. I was in the back and he was in the front. And we were like canoeing through a bayou. <laughs> like I've never even been to the American South, but it had like the Spanish moss, you know, like hanging oh, yeah. drapes from the trees into the water. And it was incredibly peaceful and beautiful. And what struck me about this dream is that Jack was like so calm and happy and peaceful in the front of the canoe. And he wasn't like capsizing the boat or falling out. And I didn't realize it at the time, but looking back, I could see that like, this was a signal to me of the real Jack. Like This is who your son really is. One of the dreams I was in like a conference room in his town, like at the offices for his group home company. And it had like big windows lining one wall which is kind of wild because I hadn't ever been to their offices, but I went there after the fact and it kind of looked like this, what I saw in my dream. And I was in this room like with a big conference table and the light coming in through the windows. And Jack walked in with a bunch of his caregivers. They had all come for a meeting we were going to have. And Jack was holding a baby in a car seat, like a baby bucket, like in the crook of his arm. And I understood in the dream that the baby belonged to like one of his caregivers. And I was petrified that Jack was going to drop the baby on the floor. And even though it was in a car seat, like I was really worried about this because that's the sort of thing that would have happened when he was living at home. Not that we had babies, you know, just milling around in car seats. But anyway, I was terrified and I was trying to think how I could like sneak up on him and get the baby away safely. Meanwhile, Jack never broke eye contact with me in the dream. And he was looking at me with this like little smile on his face, completely calm. And he was holding the baby car seat just tightly against him. And I realized that his caregivers were not concerned at all. Like they knew he was safe. He was fine. And that was like this revelation for me. I was like, I think this is the nature of the real Jack. He is, he's not going to harm anyone. He's so happy and content and peaceful. I had another dream where um, I was at Sugar House Park, which we, we lived in Sugar House when my two oldest sons were really little and I would walk there with them basically every day. So there's a, there's a little lake at Sugar House Park 
in my dream, the lake was much bigger and it had like some series of like rope bridges that went across the top of it. And Jeff and I were up on one of the rope bridges and I could see Jack was on a a separate bridge, like a suspension bridge. And he jumped from the bridge into the lake. And I was very worried about him because while he loves playing in water, he can't truly swim. So I was trying to find a way to get over to him. We were still up above the water and I looked down into the water and there were two lifeguards, a man and a woman, and they swam up on either side of Jack and they started like towing him in. And the woman said, don't worry, we've got him. And Jack was just had this like, he was kind of giggling, like, this is so fun. Like I'm being towed. (laughs) I love (laughs) it. But he was so calm and peaceful. And I woke from that dream with the profound sense that he was safe. He was good. He was really happy. So that would have meant nothing to anybody else. But those dreams for me were miraculous. They absolutely originated from heaven and they brought me so much comfort. Just just recently, just a week or so ago, I experienced a real-life miracle that felt so unexpected, and yet it was completely personal, like this little quiet parting of the Red Sea. So we were in Idaho just enjoying conference weekend, and we were sitting by a river, and Jeff and I were just sitting on this bench, just peacefully like looking at the trees and the water. My youngest son was sending boats down the river, which were just sticks and like seeing which ones, you know, went fast and which ones went the farthest and which ones sank. And he was having this wonderful time. And I, I looked over and I, I saw kind of this landscape to my left. And I realized that it was like my favorite color palette just played out in front of me. It was like greens and golds, a lot of orange mixed in and some red. And the light was just like suffusing it. And it was, I don't know, it was just incredibly beautiful. And I I was like moved to tears, feeling like this is what my life is. Like God has brought us here. Like he did bring us through the Red Sea. Like he brought us through so many hardships that I I didn't even know if we would literally survive them. And we just had this moment of complete beauty. And like, I just felt really loved at that moment. It was like all my favorite colors, the beautiful sound of the river. And it felt like a miracle to me that we had been brought to this point. I love that. And it is personal and quiet and private and maybe wouldn't like ring true as a miracle to someone else but it, it was, it was real, and it was just for you. I don't know. I, so we have this idea, I think, culturally of calling certain things miracles while like disregarding other types of maybe what we don't see as miracles, but which exist around us all the time and which actually make our lives possible. And I think that that's kind of this cultural, like saying what is a miracle and what isn't, 
kind of defining it in the in contrast is kind of like just inaccurate. Like it's not true. It's kind of denying the power of our Savior in our lives. Yeah, I think if we only discuss the miracle healings and the resuscitations and the avoidance of the car accident as miracles, then we're not seeing the quiet, personal, beautiful miracles. We know that God tries us in hardship so that we get to decide what we believe and if we will follow the Savior. So essentially, we know that every potentially harmful situation isn't going to evaporate. They're just not going to go away. It's not the nature of mortality. It's not the way the earth was organized. So basically, life is going to be hard. Hardship will not be erased. And yet, miracles abound. They're everywhere, all around us. I think sometimes when we consider miracles and how we exercise our faith to achieve them or hope for them, it's important to consider like how tied up we are in the outcome. Are we exercising our faith only for this one way that we think God can show us that He's real? Before Betty was diagnosed, we knew that there were some issues they were presenting. She was delayed, um, but there was still like this question of maybe she would catch up. And I mean, even her pediatrician was saying, you know, if she's just a few months behind in a couple of years, like no one will even perceive it. But as time went on, the delays persisted and we we didn't know what was going on. We didn't have a diagnosis at this point. And I remember that my sister um, suggested that we do a family fast. And I was kind of hesitant to do that because I felt like we didn't have an identified problem to be solved. And I thought maybe that was only appropriate when there was like a very specific miracle that we needed. Like you didn't have an identified like goal or something for the fast? Yeah, which looking back, I think is kind of silly because the resolution of the problem wasn't the only way we could have a miracle. It can come in so many ways. So many ways. And Betty's life has taught me that again and again. I do think that sometimes life will kind of like push us up against a wall that we realize we just need to accept. And it's not because we lack faith or because God can't do the miracle. It's just a part of mortality. For me, I felt, I never felt to ask for Betty's disabilities to be taken away. It it didn't seem like appropriate. I felt like the Spirit kind of confirmed that this circumstance would persist in Betty's life and in the life of our family. And I knew that it would be a part of our personal growth and it would be really hard. Yeah. (laughs) When we think of miracles, a big one that comes to mind is the parting of the Red Sea. And that was a miracle. But so was the daily manna that was supplied in the 40 years while they wandered in the wilderness. I imagine the first time that the manna appeared, it was astonishing. That it, it felt almost probably just as miraculous as the parting of the Red Sea. But I think that it, over time, probably became something rote and predictable, kind of boring, and it only lasted 
you know, for one day at a time. But it was still miraculous. I think part of that miracle was the daily nature of the manna. It kept the Israelites in constant relationship and dependence with the Lord. And I felt like that with my daughter, Betty. I felt like because of her medical complexity and her developmental delays, we just had like this steady stream of things that we needed help with, like heavenly help with. Um, We were constantly, we still are constantly going to appointments with specialists and therapists. And there's just like no shortage of miracles and milestones that we can pray for. And at the same time, we also have like this really long list of gains that she makes and successes that we can really only attribute to our heavenly parents. A lot of Betty's development has been really slow. She sat independently for the first time just before she turned two. Um, She crawled for the first time when she was three, and she took her first independent steps when she was four and a half. And, And maybe that makes it easier to recognize those things as miraculous because they were so slowed down. We didn't know if they would happen, Um, but it kind of opened my eyes to the idea of these things being miraculous, even in a typically developing person. And suddenly like all of life all around me became a miracle. Like the fact that most babies are born with all of their chromosomes intact, it's miraculous. Miracle. Yes. Absolutely. And because she requires so much consistent care, the ways that I have to minister to Betty and to serve her, they've become a big way that I feel like I've accessed kind of this same concept of daily bread, manna. Every day, I feel like I need like support and additional strength and power to deal with and like get through the struggles that we face together. And I I get that. I get the sustaining power that I need, just like the Israelites received their daily bread. I think as we surrender kind of our expectations for outcomes, our stories of how things should be, or even like what God would do if He really loved me, then we can experience each moment as a gift, even if it is like over time becoming mundane or boring or like a continued struggle we can see God in each moment, and that's miraculous. When I think about Betty's diagnosis and the concept of like a New Testament style healing that would come kind of all at once, I just, I know in my heart that that's not what is meant to be for her mortal experience, even though I know also that God is certainly capable of, you know, reconfiguring every strand of DNA and every cell in her body. But I think of it as like if God handed me like a perfect bouquet of roses and how long would it be before I forgot that I had been given that? Or like how long would they last? It would just like they would wither and I would probably forget that it had been given to me and I would just keep going with my life. Like everything's normal. (laughs) But instead I think of it as like a mountainside of wildflowers. (laughs) So there's this really beautiful place in the top of the mountains here called Albion Basin. And in late July, it just like blooms in 
the most beautiful colors. Everything's really green, and then there's just every color of flower you can imagine, like periwinkle and orange and yellow. And I've imagined, rather than being handed like this perfect bouquet on one day, that through the seasons of my life, I am like cultivating together with Jesus this like continual harvest of miracles. It requires that like we pass through all of the seasons, even the ones that are cold and harsh, but that's what lends itself to these beautiful flowers every summer. It's like this all-encompassing experience, but it weaves us together like our spiritual growth. It binds us to the Savior because really even like cultivating those flowers, we couldn't do it on our own. And through like a lifetime, I get these beautiful bouquets like on repeat every season. (laughs) And I just get to see God's hand in my life continually rather than all at once. And I know that it's just a consistent reminder that my heavenly parents are present and aware of me in my life. So about a year ago, my dear friend Amy went through a kind of traumatic health episode with her son, Aaron. At his 11-year-old well check, she just casually mentioned that he had been getting a lot of unexplained bruises. And a few blood tests later, they were walking into Primary Children's Hospital with a leukemia diagnosis looming overhead. Amy described entering the hospital with a sense of dread, quickly followed by the thought, let God show his hand. So she talked about how this thought kind of dominated her mind during their first hospitalization and his eventual re-diagnosis, which wasn't any less serious than leukemia. It was just something different. I love that Amy approached this trial with this mindset of looking for God's hand in it. Luckily, their big miracle of complete and total healing did come for her son. But something else happened too. Looking back on this experience, Amy could recognize all of the ways that God had been present, all of the small miracles that had happened all along the way. Walking into a hospital, one designated and perfectly equipped to serve children that was less than 20 minutes from her home, that's a miracle. She was able to wait in a comfortable room with her family, and there were diagnostic tests that provided swift and specific clues about her son's health. That's a miracle. They had highly viable treatment plans available for his ultimate cure. That's a miracle. Her in-laws had just recently returned weeks before her son's diagnosis from an assignment in Europe and lived just a few miles down the road, they were able to provide childcare for her other sons. That was a miracle. Her parents had also recently sold her childhood home and made the difficult move to Utah a few years prior, but it was long enough that just prior to her son's diagnosis, Amy's mom was comfortable driving on the freeway that connected their homes. That's a miracle. Amy's kids attended the same school as her nieces and nephews and were able to carpool with her sister-in-law. Her husband's office was within walking distance of the hospital. Their family had the health insurance that they needed, and their second son was a perfect match to their eldest son for a bone marrow transplant that ultimately saved his life. 
all of these things were miracles. But even if the circumstances had been different, even if they lived far away from the hospital, if there was no cure, if their in-laws weren't nearby, I think that this situation, we could still see miracles in it because Jesus is real. It's still miraculous because Jesus will always rescue us, not even ultimately, but like right now. To me, this is evident in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They exercised great faith when they were brought before King Nebuchadnezzar and he threatened to throw them into the fire and ultimately did. Before that, when they refused to bow down and worship the idol, they were fully committed to staying true and faithful to what they believed. They knew God would rescue them. They knew they would be delivered. And they said, But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Ultimately, they're saying they have confidence in God's power, but if this miracle is not to be, it won't change or affect their faith. So their commitment to their faith could be regarded as a miracle. When they were thrown into the fiery furnace, not three, but four men were seen in the midst of the flames. And the form of the fourth was like the Son of God. Jesus is with us in our fiery furnaces. He's with us even when the miracles are not evident. That is a miracle as much as any deliverance from pain or illness or tragedy. Faith is an essential component of inviting miracles and actually seeing them. In Ether chapter 12, verse 12, it says, For if there be no faith among the children of men, God can do no miracle among them. Wherefore, he showed not himself until after their faith. There's also this concept that we see from prophets that miracles aren't going to convert people. That's not really their purpose. They are gifts for those who already believe. Brigham Young said miracles or these extraordinary manifestations of the power of God are not for the unbeliever. They are to console the saints and to strengthen and confirm the faith of those who love, fear, and serve God. Yeah, and there's a scripture in Doctrine and Covenants 63.9 that kind of reiterates that. It says, But behold, faith cometh not by signs, but signs follow those that believe. I love that, that I really think that Believers are the ones that will recognize the miracles that just abound around us. And even surrounded by miracles, that is not what will build faith unless you're willing to believe. But our faith, even our faith is incomplete unless it's founded in Jesus Christ. Ultimately, Jesus is the miracle. In Elder Hallstrom's talk, he asked the question, do we have the faith not to be healed from our earthly afflictions so we might be healed eternally? So when he gave that talk, I was sitting, it was three years ago in October conference, and I was sitting next to my dad, who in just a few weeks' time would be on hospice care, and in just a couple months' time from then would pass away from cancer. And we sat by each other listening to this talk, and it was like the air was just charged around us as we were listening. And I think he was asking himself that question because he knew kind of what was coming. Do I have the faith not to be healed? Do I have enough faith in my Savior to turn my life over to Him? And I kind of, 
I saw this like incredible kind of transformation with my dad as he was on hospice care and just watching him say, trust in the Lord with all thine heart, which was his favorite scripture. And he repeated it all the time. Like it was going to be okay. This wasn't the end because of Jesus Christ. So this talk by Elder Hallstrom about do we have the faith not to be healed or this question he asks, it made me think about my son, Jack, obviously. And I went back, my mind went back to that time right before he went into residential care. And I was just struggling so much with it. We could not manage him at home. It was so terrifying and unsafe. And yet I did not want to let him go. And I asked myself one day, I remember I was doing laundry and I was like, what do I want? Like, what do I want for him? <laughs> and I was really honest with myself. And I just said, I, I wanted Jack to not be disabled. I wanted him to have the same curly red hair and super tall, like giant hobbit foot adorableness that he had, but I wanted him to not be disabled. And I kind of like stopped myself and I said, but he is like, this is what his life is going to be. And we haven't been abandoned by God because that's not going to change in like a New Testament style healing. And when I stopped feeling kind of like petulant and persecuted about this situation, I started looking at it like more analytically. And it was obvious to me that I had been led and supported and inspired just like daily, consistently up to this point. In fact, when I put aside my emotions and like just really looked at Jack's life logically, it was as though my heavenly parents were showing me exactly what I needed to know in order to proceed. It was like I was seeing the events surrounding me as stars and they were saying, we are here connecting the dots for you. We are showing you the constellation of Jack's life and how you can proceed. All you need to do is look and see. Like the miracle's already here. It's already happening. And so in the midst of all of this pain, it was like divinity was just like unfolding a, a roadmap for me, telling me exactly what I needed to know in order to place Jack into residential care, which was like, I didn't know how to do that. No one I knew had ever done that before. It was terrifying and emotional. And yet I was able to do it because I had their help every step of the way. So when I look back on the experience of Jack entering residential care, it is it's just like completely miraculous. So because he was only 13 years old, we would have to get special approval for him to enter a group home. Like usually that's something that happens when kids turn 18, but he like, we couldn't make it that long. None of us would survive. Like he, it was desperate, desperate times. So we had to get special approval and our support coordinator told me, she said, just so you know, like this process, is probably going to take somewhere between 12 and 18 months. Like it, they're going to come back with reasons why it won't work. They're going to, you're going to have to appeal it. Meanwhile, I'm thinking, I don't know how we will survive 
in the meantime, but okay, let's get started. So we started this process and we, we had all the documentation of all his behaviors and the dangerous things that had happened and the all the things that had gone on. And she, so it was a, it was a Sunday, I remember, because I was at church and the support coordinator was texting me because she was preparing the digital documents to submit for this approval. And she was just double checking various things and, and getting answers from me. And she said, I'm going to submit it tonight. And then who knows when we'll hear back. So she, she sent in the documents over the internet on a Sunday evening and then she called me first thing Monday morning and I was like, oh, this is going to be bad. Like they're, they probably just rejected it completely or something. And she was like rendered speechless on the phone. She said, um, Jack has been approved for residential care like right now at this moment. And like she couldn't even speak. She said, it's, this has never happened. It's literally never happened. And in that moment, it was like the constellation was complete, like the dots were connected for me. And it was like Jesus was saying, see, all you had to do was like turn it over to me and I'm helping you through the whole thing. Like the miracle for us was that instead of feeling like our way was hedged up, it was as though someone had pruned and plowed and paved and greased our path. And we were just sailing along in this direction that we were meant to go. It was just such a confirmation to me. From the outside, it probably wouldn't have looked miraculous, but it was undeniably a miracle. It was like God's power shaping our lives, saving us from so much trauma and giving Jack what he needed going forward. I think sometimes in the absence of the big miracles that just completely remove our obstacles, trials, or hardships, that's when we come to realize that Christ is the miracle. He is our hope. He is our redemption and our salvation from everything that would ever even prompt the need for a miracle. It's Jesus. He's the miracle. Elder Renlund said, The Savior loves to restore what you cannot restore. He loves to heal wounds you cannot heal. He loves to fix what has been irreparably broken. He compensates for any unfairness inflicted on you, and He loves to permanently mend even shattered hearts. It's Jesus. He restores all broken things. He makes us whole. That's the miracle. That restoration, it's not only physical, it's also spiritual. And spiritual healing transforms us into the truest, purest versions of ourselves. It's really only achievable through Jesus Christ. And His love casts out our every lack. He provides every kind of healing and miraculously loves us towards wholeness. Hydrate, get some sleep, take care of yourself, and dream deeply. You can find notes from today's show on our website, dreamsiclepodcast.com. 
Also, follow us on Instagram at dreamsicle.podcast. Click subscribe wherever you listen to make sure you never miss an episode.